Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances were very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. In Season 2, Angus Horden spoke with Australian War Memorial historian Michael Kelly about the Korean War. For today's special bonus episode, Michael and I caught up for a follow-up podcast. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking today with Michael Kelly. Michael, welcome back to Life on the Line. Thank you very much, Alex. Thanks for having me back. So, Michael, there's been a bit of an update on the situation regarding the Korean War since you last spoke with Angus Horton. That's correct. I think uh, since we last spoke, I was talking about the uh, the missing in action, and there had been very little action on uh, the attempt to locate them. But in recent times, there's been a memorandum of understanding signed between the uh, the Australian Department of Defence and the US Department of Defence to actually try and identify the uh, the remains that are held at Punchbowl in Hawaii, but also uh, to try and find the remains that will still definitely be in Korean soil as well. And Julie Bishop, uh, whilst she was still uh, our foreign minister, had met with her North Korean counterpart to assist that uh, as well. And uh, since she's been uh, deposed sadly we're not seeing uh, much action there yet but we're hopeful that uh, the arrangements she'd come to will still bear fruit for the families of those uh, whose loved ones are still missing in Korea. Can you give a bit of context to the background of how this situation came about? Was it a long campaign that Julie Bishop was running? or? Yeah, I think she'd come to it in the last few years. The person who's really been driving this campaign is uh, Ian Saunders, whose dad is one of those 43 missing. And he's been an absolute champion for those families whose loved ones are, are still in Korea or potentially uh, at Punchbowl in Hawaii to try and get their remains identified and uh, and laid to rest. So to give them uh, a final resting place for their loved ones to, to go and pay their respects and, and mourn for them properly. Well, obviously, we hope that chaos in Canberra doesn't have any effect on this important cause. Give me a bit more context to the Hawaii situation. At Punchbowl, at the end of the Korean War, a number of remains were handed over from cemeteries in North Korea. So you've got uh, things like outside of Pakchon and places like that where Australians were buried, and along with British. There's been the mass graves that uh, were Marines and, and other soldiers at uh, Chosin Reservoir and places like that. And individual graves that have turned up over the time. But Operation Glory at the end of the Korean War was a huge operation to repatriate these remains, many of which are identified and, and laid to rest in uh, the Busan uh, Cemetery, the United Nations Cemetery at Busan. But many of them were also sent through Japan to be identified or to be held. And they were since transferred to uh, Punchbowl in Hawaii and either laid to rest as unknowns or held above ground in storage for potential future identifications as well. So there's a bit of a uh, remains factory of sorts in, in uh, at Punchbowl that really need to be uh, looked at to uh, try and locate uh, these Australians. And a, a number of them are probably going to be there as well, which is uh, quite interesting. Assuming things do go ahead, what are next steps? Good question. It's uh, one of the things that uh, they're going to have to do is get, uh, because the missing are Army and uh, Air Force, to get the uh, the Army and Air Force history teams or recovery teams over there to Korea or to uh, Punchbowl. Search the area, for, especially in, in uh, 
demilitarized zone and some areas in North Korea for the locations of the last known actions of where these people were gone or captured or killed. We just don't know their fates. But just to know that searching those grid references where they are or where they're believed to be would be the first step. But also there are believed to be or there are known to be about 400 plus remains above and below ground in Hawaii that have not been DNA tested as far as we know to actually look for the Australians even though DNA samples have been provided to actually uh, identify these remains or attempt to identify these remains as well. So there's a couple of fronts this this needs to be uh, fought on in a way. What sort of realistic target or goals can we hope to achieve in terms of finding and identification? Good question. I think with North Korea softening their stance on foreign militaries or foreign bodies uh, entering their country, looking at uh, recovering remains and things like that, I think they're they're softening their stance a bit on that. They're still obviously going to keep a a tight lid on their own regime and things like that. But to actually look at uh, assisting allied nations relocate locate their dead, sorry, and uh, go on from there. If we can keep a a good political relationship with the North, it should make things a lot easier in the long run. But uh, it's just a matter of uh, learning how to operate in North Korea without uh, upsetting them as well. Well, it's a very live rolling situation. We've seen a lot of change in diplomacy in regards to North Korea just this year. Very much so. I think from uh, looking at Trump and Kim both having that sort of brinkmanship rhetoric to uh, almost hugging and shaking, uh, basically shaking hands over the table and even face-to-face. I mean, just to see that face-to-face meeting is amazing. Things that at the start of the year or even late last year wouldn't have been thought possible. You'd be thinking that uh, we'd be scraping one regime or another out of the ground, depending on how the, the rhetoric had gone. But they're both master brinkmen and they worked each other up and then uh, settled down and shook hands. But I think where that's gone and where Julie Bishop actually managed to get in on this as well was picking that time where diplomacy had really started to reassert itself and settle down. And I think they've, they've done that really well. And it's just a shame that the machinations in Canberra have upset that and robbed us of a, of a particularly good foreign minister who had diplomacy, uh, basically had it in spades and it's just been lost. So we're hoping that her efforts haven't been lost as well so that the families can actually uh, get their loved ones either identified or found or uh, at least the efforts being made to find them. Well, we can hope this is a bipartisan issue that is still undertaken by the Morrison government and whatever the outcome of the next federal election may be, we can hope this is still carried forward. Most definitely. I think there's enough momentum behind this movement now that uh, whichever government's in power come next year, it'll be still something that's uh, close to that uh, foreign minister's heart and uh, will be watched closely. Well, speaking of keeping things watched closely, the Australian War Memorial and yourself has been keeping profile on this somewhat active. I believe you were on television recently. Most definitely. I was uh, having a chat with uh, Ian Saunders about uh, the missing, and this is when the Memorandum of Understanding was uh, being announced and really being promoted as well as uh, something that is an, of an achievement. So Ian and I were having a chat with uh, SBS about uh, where this had gone, where the issue was heading. And also Ian has contacted me since as well. And his auntie passed away not so uh, in the recent months. And his cousin had actually found a letter in her effects from Ian's dad to her describing the front line in Korea and writing to her in a way that he hadn't written to his wife and sons. A lot more open and a lot more frank in describing his feelings and where he was and what was going on. And it really sent Ian and his brother on an emotional journey, which is, uh, as you'd expect after so many years, without actually sort of really hearing your father's words or sort of getting a sense of the man. He disappeared right before Ian's fifth birth, I think it was. So he was still a young boy. But to actually get a sense of this man's, what he was looking at and what he was feeling, which he didn't actually write to his wife and his boys, 
this letter was actually sent about a week before he was missing in action in uh, mid-January 53. It's uh, now actually being donated to the memorial as a future research uh, piece as well and to be held in safety for the Saunders family. Ian and his brother are both happy for it to come to the memorial. His cousin Barry's very happy to uh, bring it in for us as well and it's a really uh, amazing sort of part of that story of the missing that their words still being found in a way and being able to be shared with the family and Ian and his brother both had a, a very uh, emotional reaction to that as, as you'd expect and for him actually to ring me up and actually share that with me I felt really touched and just chuffed that he actually wanted it to be held safely at, at the memorial as well so it's quite a story. I think it's also quite a reflection on your place in the story. You're one of, if not the leading historian on it at the War Memorial. It makes sense that you've been given the baton to lead the charge in driving this recognition. I wish I could do more, but to be able to tell their stories through the media or through podcasts such as this, and I think this is a wonderful thing that you've actually asked me back and I'm I'm really stoked, but to actually carry that torch for Ian and all the 43 other missing men's families. I mean, I can only work in small ways, but if I can do even just the smallest thing to make their stories heard and give this topic light and air, hopefully the people outside of this that have got more power than me will will run with it as well and uh, make this happen for the families. Touching on other ways you've been spreading the word, there was a War Memorial Conference held on Korea in 2011, and you're looking to having those proceedings published. That's correct. I didn't get to speak at that conference because I was still uh, in a, a different team at that stage. I've written a chapter for this book on the last battle that the Australians fought at the Samachon, but uh, I've also been driving it uh, for the last five and a half years into print. And uh, luckily enough, I've been able to partner with Strategic Defence Studies Centre uh, at ANU in Canberra. That team there have, uh, with, under John Blackson have been absolutely brilliant in uh, getting this book put forward and, and promoted. And we should hopefully have the uh, the conference proceedings in print in book form uh, by April next year for the Kapyong anniversary. So uh, it's something that uh, we're pretty excited about. And Dayton McCarthy has a new book out too. Absolutely. He's been working hard on the Korean War as well and has just published a book on uh, Maryang San, which I haven't had a chance to read yet. But by all accounts, it's an absolute ripper because he's an, he's an ex-soldier himself and he, he knows how the battles unfold and things like that. So he brings a real soldier's strategic mind to this history. He's a really good writer as well. So I think as far as the, this publication goes, it'll be uh, highly regarded along with the likes of uh, Bob Breen's uh, monograph on Maryang San and uh, everything else that's been written on battle as well. So timely as well because the veterans are getting older. Bushy Pembroke, who was one of the platoon commanders in C Company, is ageing and is, I believe, in a home. Maury Pierce, who uh, was a military cross recipient during the battle, uh, I caught up with him back in May up in Queensland. He's been fantastic for me personally as a friend and a mentor and guide. I mean, he doesn't travel anymore either, but uh, to be able to have the opportunity to go up there and spend even an hour in his company was uh, absolutely a, a real honour. But uh, to tell these men's stories, again, Dayton's done a, a fantastic job to get this book out. Well, we can all try and let Canberra know that we want this to proceed no matter what else is happening in our Australian political scene and keep an eye on the news and see how the situation develops. Most definitely. No, he's hoping we can uh, get a good result for these families. Michael, thanks for your time today. Thank you very much, Alex. Find this podcast on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at LOTL Pod, and on Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>